Chapter 1. God is sovereign, not man. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. Isaiah 33.22 The voice of God and not of a man. Acts 12.22 Herod believed the words of his subjects. He fell for the grand illusion, the belief that those who rule are self-styled gods, independent of God's government over them. God did not take long to remind King Herod and the people that he rules in heaven and earth, and all rulers are subject to his sovereignty and law. For his denial of God's sovereignty over him, Herod became a diet of worms. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Acts 12.23 Today, the United States finds herself in the midst of making a similar choice. It's true that our coins have, in God we trust, stamped on them, but it's probably equally true that our nation puts more trust in the money where the acknowledgement appears than in the God who supplies all wealth. This nation is being warned, just as Israel was warned. God is reminding the United States that her prosperity and security do not come by way of the state. As Christians, we must heed God's warning that a forgetful nation is a doomed nation. We have come to the place where we now believe that my power and the strength of my hand made this wealth. Deuteronomy 8.17 God's assessment of such presumption is not easy to take for an unrepentant nation. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers, as it is this day. And it shall come about, if you ever forget the Lord your God, and go after other gods, and serve them and worship them, I testify against you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so you shall perish, because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 8, 18-20 Herod saw himself as a god, but what is even more frightening is that the people accept, accepted him as a god. It is no less true today that people reject the God of the Bible and his faithful provisions of life, liberty, and property, and turn to the state for sustenance and security. Where we are told to pray, our Father who art in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, Matthew 6, 9, and 11, we too often turn to the state for our daily bread. Where the Bible tells us that God is our Father, more often than not, the people make the state their Father because the state can provide them all the financial aid they need. See chapter 5 for more details. This is why the first commandment must be our starting point. For the proper ordering of ourselves, our families, our churches, and our nations, we must never put any of man's laws before the first commandment. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 22 and 3. Adherence to the first commandment protects us from those who would rewrite it to read, I, the state, am your God. You shall have no other gods before me. This is the first point in the biblical covenant structure, the absolute sovereignty of a transcendent God who is always present, imminent, with his people. He sets up a hierarchy, point two, lays down the law, point three, judges men continually, and also at the end of time, point four. He preserves his kingdom, point five. When a ruler decrees, either by words or deeds, that he is independent of God's government, or that justice is defined according to his self-made laws, or that man looks to the state for salvation, then God responds with judgment. A nation might not see God's judgment in the same way Herod did, 
But time brings all things to light. Choosing man as the sovereign ruler, independent of God, will lead a nation to slavery and eventually destruction. For the despot, power is all that matters. Words and what they mean, what they can mean, are used to change opinions. When man makes up his own meaning on the basis of his own power, chaos results. Then a power struggle takes place among all those people who want their word to rule. For humanism, power determines meaning. God speaks or new speak. What if a change in meaning results in the erosion of legitimate power and authority from individuals, families, churches, business establishments, and city, county, and state governments? What if government of the people, by the people, and for the people becomes government over the people in the name of the people? What if this change in definition works for the creation of a single political entity that sees itself as God walking on earth? What if the denial of God's many governments means that the state, a centralized civil government, becomes the all-embracing power that orders society through power, all in the name of security, peace, and prosperity? In George Orwell's terrifying novel, 1984, Newspeak was the official language of Oceania, a futuristic place where Big Brother reigned. The purpose of Newspeak, Orwell writes, was not only to provide a medium of expression for the worldview and mental habits proper to the devotees of Ingsoc, Newspeak for English Socialism, but to make all other modes of thought impossible. The purpose in a shift in definition is to have people think one-dimensionally, to think in terms of the accepted, meaning imposed, definition, and no other. A shift in meaning has taken place with the word government. Today, when the word government is used, civil government at the state or national level is what most people have in mind, obliterating by definition the legitimate governments of family, church, and the various local civil governments like the city, county, and many states. Noah Webster. Let's briefly look at some older definitions of the word to see that government meant more than the state, that is, civil government, at the national level. The dictionary is always a good place to begin. Noah Webster's An American Dictionary of the English Language, first published 1828, defines government this way. Government. Noun. Direction. Regulation. These precepts will serve for the government of our conduct. Two. Control. Restraint. Men are apt to neglect the government of their temper and passions. Three. The exercise of authority, direction, and restraint exercised over the actions of men in communities, societies, or states, the administration of public affairs according to the established constitution, laws, and usages, or by arbitrary edict. Prussia rose to importance under the government of Frederick II. 4. The exercise of authority by a parent or householder. Children are often ruined by neglect of government in parents. Let family government be like that of our Heavenly Father, mild, gentle, and affectionate. Did you notice the emphasis here? All human government begins with the individual. We've been calling this self-government or self-control, Galatians 6.23, Acts 24.25. Self-government undergirds all institutional governments, including the mothers and fathers and family government, elders and church government, and civil servants at all jurisdictional levels in civil government. Webster did not define government as the state and only the state. Where did these early definers of government get these fundamental ideas? From the Bible. When the Bible speaks of government in the singular, it refers to the government of Jesus Christ that encompasses all other governments. 
For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. His government is as comprehensive as his creation. He created all things. He rules over all things. The one government of God. The word government has a comprehensive definition that includes self-government, family government, church government, and civil government. The operation of these plural governments, families, churches, and civil government at local, county, state, and federal levels is dependent upon one government of God expressed in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, and other passages. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1, 3, and for by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1:16 and 17. God, then, is the model for all types of governments. The created order images God. The study of the law given to individuals, families, churches, and nations, will show that these divine directives reflect God's attributes. For example, the individual is to be holy as God is holy. The love that Jesus expressed in giving his life for the church is to be copied by husbands in their love for their wives, Ephesians 5.22-34. The discipline the Father gives their children is a model of God's discipline of his children, Hebrews 12.1-13. The state is God's minister an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Romans 13.4, cross-reference 12.19. How does the principle of many governments work itself out in family, church, and state? Children are commanded to obey their parents in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1. There is real authority here, and parents have jurisdiction within their family structure. Church members are part of a jurisdictional government called ecclesiastical government. The church is given the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and with these keys the leadership can bind and loose within the church, Matthew 16:19. The church, that is, those who are in authority, have the authority to excommunicate unrepentant members, Matthew 18:15 through 18. The church is given power to handle legal matters that many would see as the exclusive power of the state, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. In the book of Hebrews, we are told to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, Hebrews 13, 17. Ultimately, God will demand an accounting from men regarding their obedience to the authorities. But this includes all authorities, not just civil authorities. The state has the power of the sword. It does not bear the sword for nothing, Romans 13.4. Because the state has legitimate authority, Peter can write, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right, 1 Peter 2.13 and 14. The one and the many. God has established numerous authorities for the proper ordering of society. Mothers and fathers have authority over their children. Church leaders, elders, and deacons hold authority in their church. 
civil rulers exercise political authority by God's decrees. In other relationships, contracts can bind individuals and groups subject to the stipulations of a contract. The employer-employee relationship is contractual and carries with it legitimate authority. The courts, the judicial arm of civil authority, enforce the obligations of contracts by punishing the contract breaker and seeing to it that restitution is paid to the contract keeper. A contract is based upon God's covenantal design. God sets forth obligations, benefits for obeying the contract, and reprisals for breaking covenant stipulations. Organizations can lawfully enforce contracts like God enforces his covenants. The concept of multiple delegated authorities is patterned after the divine one and many, the Trinity. There is one God, unity, and there are three persons, diversity, in the Godhead, each of whom is God. Each member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has authority, unity of purpose in the exercise of authority. Yet each performs a different task in history, diversity of function and the use of authority to accomplish the one purpose. The triune God has impressed his creation with this divine pattern. Thus, he has ordained the family, the church, the civil governments as institutions, lesser authority structures under his jurisdiction, many institutions, but united by one purpose and duty, obedience to God for his glory. What then should be ultimate in society? The one or the many, unity or diversity, the individual or the group. Should we have one monolithic authority, or should every individual be an authority unto himself? The creation reflects the creator. We find that it reflects God's unity and his diversity. In the creation and in mankind's institutions, unity is not to swallow up diversity, and diversity is not to blow apart unity. Thus, we should expect to find that debates over the proper form of civil government always return to this theme. Which is primary, unity or diversity? And the biblical answer is simple in principle, though difficult to achieve in practice. Neither! What kinds of political structures do anti-Christian civilizations recommend? They insist that God is not a trinity. He is not simultaneously one and many. He is not the three persons, yet also one person. They deny that there is equal ultimacy of the one and the many, meaning that the unity of God is not ultimate over the plurality of persons of the Trinity, each of whom is God. They insist that God is either one or many, either unified or totally diverse. A nation's view of government reflects its view of God and God's legal relationships with mankind. So governments recommended by anti-Christians tend either towards statism or anarchy, ruled by the one or the many. Anarchy. One proposed solution to the problem of how power and authority ought to function in society is to place sovereignty totally with the individual. Whenever we see the word total or totally with respect to man and his institutions, beware. Tyranny is lurking in the shadows. Anarchy is the ultimate implication of this philosophy. Every man his own judge and jury. The Bible tells us that God is man's ultimate judge and jury. God lays down the law. He places man at the creation and the creation under the restraining factor of his law. Furthermore, the fall of man into sin made even more external restraint necessary. The anarchist believes that external restraints perpetuated by civil governments are the culprits for all of our ills. The individual must work to remove the shackles of external restraint and open the floodgates of unbridled freedom for all people. For the anarchist, civil government is the enemy of society simply because it rules over the individual. 
The word anarchy is made up of two Greek words, a, which means no, and arche, which means rule or power. An anarchist despises any power greater than himself, and he will work in a violent way to overthrow any authority that works to curtail any of his individual freedoms, no matter how deviant or dangerous to the broader society. Modern-day terrorism is a manifestation of anarchy under the guise of freedom. The counterculture of the 60s fosters anarchy as a way of reversing the order of society. Much of the rock music fanned the flames of the 60s radicalism. The revolutionary anarchist believes the inherent goodness of some men. The revolutionary anarchist believes in the inherent goodness of some men, and that with an overthrow of the existing order and death of the remaining evil men, a new society will emerge from the rubble. The pacifist anarchist, such as the Russian writer Tolstoy, believes that the innate evil of man's coercive institutions and so withdraws power from it, leaving those who believe in salvation by power in greater control. Either way, escape or power, anarchy is nothing more than a shortcut to tyranny. Marxism uses the disenchantment of some people to create so much chaos that the only solution to a nation's problems is totalitarian rule. Under communism, anarchy is the first ideology eliminated after the revolution succeeds. Many Christians who have grown frustrated at the slow progress the people of God seem to be making in society have turned to anarchy as the only solution to a creeping tyranny. Consider David's response to a murderous King Saul. Did David murder Saul when Saul persecuted him? David was forced to flee Israel and pretend to be crazy in the presence of the Philistines, and not just the Philistines, but the king of Gath, the city of Goliath, 1 Samuel 21, 10-15. David was God's anointed, yet he did not challenge Saul. He did not surrender either. He wrote, I shall not die, but live, and declare the works of the Lord, Psalm 118, 17. Anarchy is the way of historical losers and short-sighted thinkers. It is not surprising to learn that when Lenin began to consolidate his power in Russia after the Russian Revolution, he deported the anarchists or had them shot. Yet they had supported revolutionary violence in the name of abolishing all political and state blueprints. There will always be state blueprints. The question is, whose? God's or some petty dictator? The Bible or some humanist planning elite? Autocracy. Another way to solve the dilemma of political power is to consolidate it in one man, to create a messianic figure. An autocrat is someone who is an independent ruler. His power, kratos, is self-derived, auto. He continues in power by his own decree and is backed by military might. In the book of Judges, we find the Israelites harassed by the Midianites. And the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains, and the caves, and the strongholds. Judges 6.2 Israel's predicament was the result of disobedience. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Judges 6.1 Instead of turning to God in repentance, the people looked for a political solution to their problems. The people were trusting in their man-made tower. Judges 8-9 Instead of putting their trust in God as their mighty fortress, Psalm 46, they chose the supposed power of man and man's puny fortresses. Gideon promised to tear down this fortress, this idol of security and salvation. Judges 8-9 
After Gideon defeated the enemies of Israel, the people were ready to set up a centralized political regime. The men said, Rule over us, both you and your son, and also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian, Judges 8.22. The problem the Israelites had with the Midianites happened because they had rejected God as their king. Now that God had delivered them, they still failed to acknowledge that the Lord should rule over them, Judges 8.23. Instead, they opted for a centralized, humanistic, and perpetual social order with Gideon and his family as permanent rulers. To them, Gideon was more than a judge, a localized civil ruler. He was to be their king who would sit on a throne and make them secure. A centralized social order is better for man than putting one's trust for safety and security in the Lord. With 40 years of peace behind them, the people had forgotten who brought them peace. Cross-reference Deuteronomy 8. The people began to play the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god, Judges 8.33. Once again, the rejection of God as their king led them to look to man and some sort of centralized social order. One of Gideon's sons, Abimelech, attempted to centralize power and authority and place all sovereignty in himself. Abimelech took advantage of the weakened commitment of the people to the Lord. If they were ready to worship a synthetic god, Baal Bereth means Baal of the covenant, a mixture of Baalism and the promises of the covenant, then they might have been ready to rally around him for security, a synthetic king. Abimelech's father was an Israelite, while his mother was a Canaanite. To ensure his scheme to power, Abimelech killed all of his political competition. He went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jerubal, 70 men on one stone. Judges 9.5 Jotham escaped the bloodbath at Ophrah and went to Mount Gerizim to warn the Israelites not to rally around a king who promised security and at the same time demanded unconditional loyalty. The result of such an alliance would be their destruction. He told them, If in truth you are anointing me, Abimelech, as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade, the promise of security. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon, the reality of tyranny, Judges 9.15. As with all centralized political regimes, judgment and ruin are inevitable. This centralized administration of Abimelech was made up of worthless and reckless fellows from Shechem, Judges 9.4. It was not long before the administration of this new dynastic ruler fell into ruin, and those who followed him to visions of power became disenchanted. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, in order that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jerubal might come, and their blood might be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Abimelech verses 23 through 25. An autocratic government is inherently unstable. Assassination and political coups are always present when there are other ambitious men seeking the same power. The people are rarely safe. Each successive ruler often changes the rules and regulations at his own whim. The people have little if any input into the workings of the government. There is no check on the king's power. Samuel Rutherford, 1600-1661, an attempt to counter the divine rights of kings position, which was nothing more than an autocratic government, 
wrote Lex Rex, or The Law and the Prince, in 1644. Rutherford's position put even the king under God's law. As would be expected, Lex Rex was outlawed in England and Scotland. Rutherford's views were so jeopardized the divine rights of kings mandate that he was condemned to death for his views. He died before he could be executed as a rebel of the autocratic state. Oligarchy. The word oligarchy is derived from a Greek word meaning rule, archean, by the few, oligos. In our day, the Supreme Court acts as an oligarchy. The justices on the court are considered the final court of appeal. The law is what they say it is. The court is a closed system. Nothing outside the court, nothing higher than the court rules. While Congress can overrule the Supreme Court and even impeach justices who consistently rule contrary to the Constitution, it rarely, if ever, happens. These justices are then an oligarchy by default. What restrains the court from overstepping its constitutional authority? In the words of Justice Stone's famous remark of 1939, the only check upon our exercise of power is our own sense of self-restraint. But the very purpose of government is to check the inability of man to monitor his self-restraint. To give absolute control of government to a small group of men and women flies in the face of the biblical doctrine of total depravity. Power in the hands of men whose only check is their own sense of what they believe is right or wrong puts a nation at risk. Power corrupts, said Lord Acton, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. What happens if the philosophy chosen by the court is assumed to be just and right and yet results in the tyranny of the masses? What happens when a small group of men pronounce that an unborn child is not protected by the Constitution, that he has no rights, that his mother has the constitutional right to kill him at will? Nine men, an oligarchy, sentenced 20 million unborn babies to death. Democracy. Most Americans are under the impression that our nation is a democracy. To be sure, there are certainly democratic elements in our constitutional system. The First Amendment to the Constitution states that the people have the right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The petition of the people is only as good as the character of the people. Keeping in mind the biblical doctrine of the depravity of man, our constitutional framers steered clear of a democracy. Constitutional attorney John W. Whitehead writes, It must be remembered that the term democratic appears neither in the Declaration of Independence nor in the Constitution. Actually, when the Constitution is analyzed in its original form, the document is found to be a serious attempt to establish a government mixed with democratic, aristocratic, and monarchical elements, a government of checks and balances. A democracy places all power in the people. It's a government of the masses. The word of is tricky. It can mean by or it can mean over. The bloody tyrannies of our day have been imposed over the people in the name of the people. Democratic law is based on the will of the majority. If the whims and fancies of the people change, the law changes. In the Federalist Papers, which were popular newspaper articles written in defense of the ratification of the Constitution in 1787 and 1788 by Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay, democracies were described as spectacles of turbulence and contention. Democracies are incompatible with personal security or the rights of property. In general, they have been as short in their lives as they have been in their violent in their deaths. Democracies 
degenerate into exploitation because some voters discover that they can vote themselves political and financial favors out of the public treasury. Those seeking power through majority rule always vote for the candidate promising the most benefits. The results are certain. Democracies collapse because the public treasury is milk dry because of greater voter demand. A dictatorship normally follows. Socialism. Socialism, along with its illegitimate son, communism, is an advancing around the world. Socialism appeals to man's desire to get something for nothing through the agency of an omnipotent state government. Under socialism, the means of production is owned by the state. The state interferes in the everyday affairs of all the people, even in the transactions they make. The state determines what will be produced, how much of an item will be produced, how it will be produced, where it will be produced, by whom it will be produced, what it will sell for, how people will get that product, and how it will be used. Under socialism, the individual is given little incentive to invent, produce a better product, or to be more efficient so a product can be sold at a lower price and thus benefit all of society. The state determines everything. Socialism is rarely democratic. That is, the people have little to say about who gets elected to office to set socialistic policies. Like a democracy, socialists stay in power by the promise. The voting public is always promised a share of the state's monies. From this, the rulers are able to purchase the votes they need to stay in power. When the people are dissatisfied with one socialist leader, they will vote him out for another who promises to make his promises good. The bottom line is that the rulers prostitute themselves in order to maintain power. Those who submit to socialism are rewarded. Those who do not submit, as the English Fabian socialist George Bernard Shaw, 1856-1950, so urbanely equipped, will be mercifully put out of the way. All socialism begins with interventionism, the gradual manipulation of the economy through governmental decree. Again, it's always with the promise that things will be better if the state steps in to fix things. Summary. The first principle of biblical government, church, state, family, and self-government, is that God is in charge. Government must begin with self-government under God. This is as true of civil government as for all other forms of government. Humanism's denial of God's government means in practice that the individual's will is absorbed and denied by the will of the state. Public policy overrules any contradictory policy held by an individual, a church, a business, or a civil jurisdiction at the state, county, or city level. When tyranny finally happens, when the state's will becomes the people's will, the citizenry look at the prevailing conditions and ask how it could have happened. Fingers are pointed all around when, in fact, the finger pointing ought to begin with each of us. A nation that denies God's government over the individual, the family, the church, and the state will find itself enslaved to those who want to be master. The sad thing is that many of us are willing to let it happen. More than this, we wanted it to happen. There is always the promise of security, the giving up of a little more self-determination, the handling over of a bit more jurisdiction to those who want to make us so secure. The doors of tyranny are closing. Are we motivated to follow God through the opening? Or will we forever find ourselves locked in the grip of willing power merchants who will use us for their evil ends? The choice is ours. 
The term government has many meanings today. Most people define it solely political in solely political terms. Other dictionaries, especially Noah Webster's American Dictionary of the English Language, 1828, define government with a multiplicity of meanings and referring to numerous dur- jurisdictions. Older textbooks see government as beginning in the home, what we would call family government. Government in the singular belongs to God alone. The church is a legitimate government with authority and power. God has established multiple governing authorities, one of which is civil government. These many authorities were not designed to compete, but to cooperate. Multiple created authorities are patterned after the divine one and many, the triune God. The one is not to be exalted over the many. The many are not to be exalted over the one. The many governments established by God are each placed over a domain designated by God in Scripture. Civil government is a God-ordained government that has a very limited jurisdiction that is designed to punish evildoers and promote the good. In summary, 1. Rulers speak in the name of the God of the society. 2. Societies are therefore ruled either by the words of God or by the words of men. 3. A nation that forgets God is doomed in history. 4. God is the ultimate source of peace and prosperity. 5. To say that any human institution provides us with peace and prosperity is to make a God of that institution. 6. God judges institutions that rule in the name of any other God. 7. The words of man can be manipulated by men. 8. One source of political power in history has been the ability of rulers to redefine words. 9. A shift in meaning has taken place in the word government. Government only as the state. 10. Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary defined all government as beginning with self-government. 11. The Bible teaches that human governments are plural. 12. In the Bible, the government singular refers only to the rule of Christ. 13. God is the model for all governments. 14. God is a trinity, both one and many. 15. Anti-Christian views of government destroy either unity or diversity of society.